afternoon, everyone, and happy Sabbath. And thank you very much to the choir for very, very beautiful music. As always, I think that might be a record for the number of of uh, people in the choir uh, here in Charlotte. It was really fantastic, and appreciate the, the visitors who who participated. In the book of Genesis, we are introduced to the story of Joseph. As a 17-year-old, you know, he was sold by his brothers as a slave. What brothers? He was taken to Egypt. Things went from bad to worse. He wound up in prison. And we know some years later, he unexpectedly came before Pharaoh and was able to interpret dreams and through God's inspiration predicted seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Pharaoh made him a great ruler and he administered a grain program which kept the Egyptians alive through this drought. Eventually his brothers came down to Egypt and there was a reunion of sorts that they were not expecting. He found himself face to face with his brothers. What a scene that must have been. You know, I don't think it's that we can overestimate the the emotion, the drama that that must have been there, the, the thoughts and the emotions that were surging through Joseph and ultimately surging through his brothers the shock, the alarm, the amazement, the fear when they realized who he was. <clears throat> we read about this, this amazing event, and we're not going to read the whole story, but we're, we're picking it up when he revealed himself to them. Genesis chapter 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his Brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him. They were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. These two years the famine has been in the land and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Remarkable, after all that had happened, after the betrayal, after the heartache, after the, the cruel bondage that he had gone through for years, he said, God put me here so that I might serve you, that I might preserve you, that I might fill a need. And the need was great. We know the famine was over all the, the, the surrounding countries at the time. 
the story says that. And Joseph had a hand in not only saving his family, but in saving humanity in that whole area of the world. Talk about feeling needed. You think Joseph felt needed? I think it made him feel pretty good that he was able to help in a meaningful way. His family, but also thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, there seems to be a desire that God has put in all of us to one degree or another, an emotional need to feel needed. To feel needed. To feel like I'm doing something important, that people are depending on me, they value my contribution, they're, they're looking to me for something that I can give them. It's very powerful. You know, ultimately, most people in their life, after perhaps seeking other things earlier in their life, they want meaning. They want to know that their life has been meaningful, that they have helped, they have had a, a, an impact on others. Ultimately, they were needed. Just imagine how Joseph felt. And yet, how did that happen? How did he wind up being the second in command in Egypt? Did he send out resumes to get a job as second in command under Pharaoh? Did he inquire, you know, is Pharaoh taking applications for, uh, you know, uh, governor of Egypt? You know, is he interested? Uh, was he saying, you know, if only I could be governor over all of Egypt, then I would really have an opportunity to, to feel needed and to serve people in a meaningful way. Then I would get involved because it would be meaningful. Brethren, how did he get his job? Let's go back in the story a little ways. Genesis chapter 39. And we read in verse 1 that Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him. Bought him. He was a slave. How much opportunity for advancement do you have as a slave? How many rights do you have? Who cares about your needs for self-actualization as a slave? Nobody. But here he was. And for some reason he was blessed. It says he bought him and the Lord was with Joseph and he was successful. And he was in the house of the master, his master, the Egyptian, and his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. Joseph found favor in his sight. We know he was wrongfully accused, wound up in prison. Chapter 39, verse 20. Then Joseph's master in prison took him and, uh, sorry, Potiphar, took him and put him into the prison. Uh, now what's it like in prison? No family, no friends, no one cares for you. No one really cares what you can contribute. No one needs you. 
You're in prison. Again, how do you train to be governor of Egypt in prison? Did they have a sort of governor internship program, you know, in the prison of the king? Um, did he get a master's degree while he was there? Business administration, agricultural development, uh, you know. No, he didn't. But again, for some reason, he was blessed. And that's exactly what it says. But he was there in prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison committed to Joseph's hand all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever they did there, it was his doing. The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. What did he do? Did God just magically make him prosper? Did Joseph slip into discouragement and self-pity? You know, certainly he must have to some degree. And he could have been crushed by this. And said, why am I here? What am I doing? No one loves me. No one cares for me. God himself has forsaken me. No one needs me. And, and certainly he felt those things at times, but he came out of it. At some point, he came to himself, picked himself up, looked around as a slave and as a prisoner, and said, where is there a need to be filled? And it changed his life. And the rest is history. Brethren, I have a question for all of us today. Who needs you? Who needs you? Are you needed? Is your contribution important? Is there someone who's depending on you for something? Wherever you are in your life, young, old, middle-aged, non-middle-aged, whatever your category is, who needs you? I'd like to talk about that today. It's a fundamental, deep desire in all of us that our lives should mean something, and that ultimately is translated into, in in some respects, who needs us. That's my title, if you'd like a title, Who Needs You? Think about those in the room right now around you, next to you, in front of you, behind you. Who needs you? Is there anyone in this room who needs you? You, someone that you have or will provide a need physically, spiritually, emotionally. So that if you were gone, you'd be missed. If you're blessed with a husband or wife, the answer should be easy for you. The person sitting next to you is someone who needs you. We understand that. At the most basic level, marriage let's say, as an institution, it is a vehicle in, in one respect for giving us an opportunity to grow by fulfilling the needs of another person. And in turn, we feel fulfilled. We feel like there's something meaningful going on. Paul talks about that. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22 
<clears throat> Let's turn over there in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Briefly here. He talks about the responsibilities of husbands and wives, which are based on needs. They're not just something that he pulled out of the sky, pulled out of the air, thought, let's see, what can I command husbands to do? What can I command wives to do? Ah, this will be interesting. No, it's based on our needs. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your husbands, your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Verse 32 He says, after talking about marriage, he said, this is a great mystery. And marriage is a mystery to the world. Most people in the world do do not understand its purpose. It's not a place for selfishness and self-servingness. It's a mechanism for learning to fulfill someone else's needs. And that helps us, that changes us, and that helps us fulfill our potential as well and feel like we are contributing in a meaningful way. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul said that husbands and and wives should do a a certain thing in marriage. And he boiled it down to loving your wife and respecting your husband. But again, the underlying foundation of that command is that these acts are precisely what men and women need. It's fulfilling a need. Women have a a deep emotional need to be loved and cherished. And men have a deep emotional need to be respected and admired. God made us that way. You know, in the world, those needs are, are belittled. You know, a, a man needs respect. You need to stroke his ego every now and then because he's just a little boy. And he has a big ego. No, it's not ego. It's the way God created him. And wives treat that with great respect. Treat that knowledge delicately. And husbands, don't belittle a woman because she needs love. And needs to be told that you love her every day. How silly, how childish. No, it's not silly or childish. God made her that way. A secret to marriage is figuring this out. That it's an honor and a privilege if we are married, that God has given us the opportunity to provide for a deep fundamental need need 
in another human being. And that honor and privilege must be treated with tremendous respect and care. If we are married, let's make sure we're doing that and really make an effort to learn how to do these things and to learn from each other. A wise husband and a wise wife will do that. Not perfectly, but they will be trying. They will be trying. Another obvious group of individuals who are needed is parents. If you have children, who's going to feed them? Who's going to clothe them? Who's going to give them a house to live in? Who will make sure they don't play in the street or run with scissors? Somebody has to do it. Otherwise, for sure they're going to play in the street and run with scissors. Fathers and mothers do that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Notice what Paul said. And he was describing his relationship with the church there. But he compared it to how a father interacts and how a mother interacts in the family. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse... I'm sorry, chapter 2... And verse 7, on the same page, shouldn't be hard to find. He's talking to the church and he said, But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. We were affectionately longing for you. Who does a child go to when they're afraid? Mama. When the thunder bellows, where can they find comfort and peace and safety and encouragement to be, to be snuggled and to be hugged and to be loved? A mother senses very deeply that she is needed. And it's very rewarding, that baby in, in her arms and that child as it grows in her embrace. Maybe once in a while she needs a break from being needed so much. But then not long after that, she wants that baby again. And it's a powerful sense of being needed, feeling needed. A father's role is important too. Notice in verse 11, he says, You are witnesses, in verse 10, And God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believed, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own Children, fathers have a distinct role as well, different from mothers. Did you know that roughhousing actually makes your kids smarter? I learned that. I didn't know that when, you know, all the times that, that we were wrestling on the floor, but uh, I'm really glad now that, I, that we did it, um, you know, because it makes your children smarter. Um, makes them more socially adaptable. It makes them able to face challenges better. There are actually studies that, that talk about this, and it talks about the brain connections that are made and, and that children benefit from the things that dads do and how they play with them and how they stimulate that, those, those things in the brain. It's safe, but it's exciting, and it helps children in that way. Teaches them about trust. Teaches them about uh, boundaries. It teaches them about fair play. All of those things. There is a, a, a 
amusing uh, tongue-in-cheek video on the website artofmanliness.com. And uh, this man has put together a short video about the, uh, the art of roughhousing. It's really actually kind of nice. He has the, even shows some of the wrestling moves, the horsey, the, the scupa bed, the super gus, etc. Well, I won't go in beyond in that. You can, you can look at it yourself if you're interested. <clears throat> I, actually, I think Dr. Meredith talked about uh, roughhousing in uh, an article years and years and years ago about masculinity and about the role of a father in, in training, and not just that, but in many different ways. Being a parent brings tremendous deep satisfaction that you are needed to care for these precious human beings. And you have them on loan from God for a certain period of time. They're made in God's image. And you are there to care for and to teach and correct, yes, but to guide and to try to impart your experience. It pushes you. It, it challenges you. They, they sometimes disappoint you. But you love them, and they're your children because they need you. They need you. What a privilege it is that God has given us that role in family. Those of us who are parents or grandparents or extended family in, in many different ways. And if it's those who don't have children, if it's God's will, and if it's your desire to have children and experience that someday, it can be a wonderful, life-changing blessing. But what if you're not a husband, a wife, or a father, or a mother? What if when you fill out your tax form, it's just you, no dependents to claim, who needs you? Does anyone need you? You know, I think that's something that everyone feels from time to time who lives alone. Who needs me? If I'm a single... We have many singles here on the weekend, the Carolina Singles Weekend, and we're, we're glad you're here. It's an exciting event and a time. But if you're a single, you, you come to an empty home. You come to a dark house. You're the one who turns the lights on, who cooks the dinner, who adjusts the thermostat, who chooses the music for the evening, who chooses the TV show. No one else. Maybe you have others over, but eventually they go home. And it's lonely. And you can feel like no one needs me. What about our seniors who are single or perhaps widowed or a widower? They are alone. In a time when it would be nice to watch sunsets together, to sit on the porch and reminisce together with a mate, to grow old together, or to be old together, I guess it could be another way. To laugh with and to, to share life with. And their mate's gone. And when something goes bump in the night, you know, it's more scary for a widow if their husband's no longer around. They want him to get up and investigate and uh, beat up the bad guy, you know, if there's a bad guy. But they're alone. And they can feel like they're not needed. Brethren, if you are single or elderly or alone, are you needed? Are you needed? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. 
The answer is very clear in Scripture from God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. Paul says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. We have an advantage that the world does not have. People out there struggle with not having a purpose. And what is the meaning of their life? And they come up empty. Oftentimes, because they don't know what we know, and they don't have what we have. Verse 13, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? You know, I'm just a foot. I'm not important. Nobody needs me. I'm always on the floor. I get dirty. I get stinky and smelly, and people don't really want to look at me. Now, if I was a hand, if I were a hand, wow. I mean, just think about it. Every time people greet each other, the hands are involved. They're right there on the front line. I would be needed But no, I'm a foot. Nobody ever shakes a foot. (laughs) Nobody needs me. Verse 16, And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? But if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? Paul sort of gives us a vivid word picture of how ridiculous it would be if we were all one part. It wouldn't work very well. If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? Verse 18. But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. Just as he pleased. You know, in the human body, every part is needed. For a long time, scientists couldn't figure out why the appendix is where it is. In fact, they named it the appendix. You know, what does appendix mean? Appended means something that's added, something that's uh, a supplement, an addition, because we don't know what it does. It's not really needed. In fact, we'll cut it off most of the time, especially if it causes trouble. You know, it has no function, and it gets inflamed, and out it goes. But now doctors are beginning to understand the, the appendix has a function. It's a place where bacteria is stored, so good bacteria, so that if in the gut the, the, the good bacteria is killed off or, or removed somehow, there's a pocket of stored bacteria that can help to replenish the bacteria in the rest of the, the uh, intestines. Marvelous reason for an appendix. It has a purpose after all. Hooray for the appendix! <laughs> you know, just because human beings didn't know the purpose of the appendix, did it mean that there wasn't one? God knew all along. Brethren, can we sometimes think of ourselves as a spiritual appendix? I know that's kind of weird, but, you know, (laughs) 
that no one cares about you. You're just sort of tacked on to the body. In fact, your name is tacked on, added to, supplement of. And if you were removed, no one would notice it anyway, and they'd think, yeah, I probably needed to go. (laughs) Maybe you just haven't figured out where and why you're needed. But if God puts you in the body, you have a function. That's what Paul is saying, verse 20. He says, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. There is no part of the body that is not needed. And yet we humanly sometimes treat one another, don't we? I don't need you. You're not important. You're you're weaker. I consider you as less important. But brethren, God is not a respecter of persons. Everyone is important. Our importance is not determined by race. God made all the races. He loves all the variation in his family. One is not more important than another. There is neither Jew nor Greek. All are called to repent. Importance is not determined by where we live. You know, being at headquarters... Being in Charlotte does not make anyone more important than anywhere else in our congregations all over the country. Somebody's got to be at headquarters. Somebody's got to be out in the field. But every part's needed. Every part has a function. Nationality does not determine our importance. Living in the United States or being a physical Israelite does not make anyone important. We need to know who the Israelites are so we can accomplish our mission, so we can get the gospel and warning message out to them as Christ commanded to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How can we follow his command unless we know who they are? So it's important to know who they are for that reason to finish the work. But brethren, beyond that, when it comes to our calling and when it comes to standing before God, our nationality is irrelevant. It does not make us important. Our brethren in Malaysia and Indonesia and India and Nigeria, new contacts in Ethiopia, all over the world, they're all important. As much as any of us here in the United States or in Israelite countries. We must not ever think that any part of the body is not needed. It's just not part of God's thinking. But brethren, that also means that we must not think that we are not needed. That's actually lacking faith and not trusting God, if you think about it. He says in verse 24, But our presentable parts have no need, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. 
You know, our children are a part of the body. They are sanctified. They're not yet baptized, converted, but they're still part of the body. They might feel like the weaker members sometimes. You know, when you're a kid, you, you, you oftentimes sometimes feel awkward. You don't really know your identity yet. You don't really know where you're going to fit in in, in life. And even those who seem very confident, they struggle with, does anyone like me? Does anyone care about me? Does anyone really need me? If I were gone tomorrow, would, would they even stop to think, oh, yeah, who, is, is someone missing? But they have a place. They fill needs as well. And our children learn to interact with one another. They don't do it perfectly. They have to be taught and directed. But they learn to give friendship to one another. You know, children are needed in the body. Older kids learn to give affirmation to younger ones. That means a lot. I still remember some of the older teens when I was a preteen that, that actually looked at me and talked to me. It was remarkable. I, you know, it was like a miracle. It just didn't happen very often. And I've never forgotten them. Children are also needed to clean out chicken sheds and shovel manure sometimes. You know, children, don't think that you are not needed. You know, actually one of the reasons that we do have animals is that caring for animals teaches us, teaches children, that, you know, when you haven't done your chores, the, the, the animals are hungry. They're needing to eat, and they're depending on you to eat. They need you. It's an important lesson. Older people need to feel valued, and, and younger people can supply that need. Uh, Mr. Jonathan McNair wrote in a recent article in the TW, in, actually in this current uh, uh, issue, old can be good. He said this, when an older person approaches Speaking to young people, do you stand up, look them in the eye and greet them or just ignore them? Do you interrupt their conversation and speak to them as if they were a peer? This shows disrespect. But by acting with respect, we learn to respect. And if we learn to respect, we'll be more receptive to the wisdom, understanding, and perspective that older people can share with us. So even our young people have an important role let's say, in the congregation, in the body. As kids get older, they learn they are needed in other ways. I I remember an aha moment that I had in my life in my late teens when I went to camp as a worker. I had been a camper before at summer camp in SEP and really enjoyed it. It was a fantastic time, but I didn't think about it in this way at the time, but my experience was taking, 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 and taking. The counselors had prepared everything for me. The teachers had prepared their lessons for me. The grounds crew had prepared the place to be safe for me. Everything was directed towards me as a camper. And it was great. It was wonderful. It was fun. But I didn't know I was missing a whole level of fulfillment. I came back a few years later as a worker, and the roles were reversed. I had heard about how hard it was to work at summer camp, how much work it was, but nothing could have prepared me 
for what happened. It was the most thrilling summer I had ever had up to that point, much more than when I was a camper. Not just because I was at camp, not just because I was on canoe staff and it was fun, not just because I had a summer job, but because I was a part of a team that was giving and giving and giving and giving and giving some more. I was a part of a program of people who had dedicated their lives for that period of time to provide something totally unselfish. And they were charged with going all out for one purpose, to serve those campers. And it was absolutely breathtaking. I felt like I was a part of the church in a way that I had never experienced before. I felt I was needed. Looking back, I was just a kid. Brethren, this is a powerful motivation for all of us to feel we are needed. Romans chapter 14, verse 7, I'll just read it. It says, For none of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. None of us lives in isolation. Everything we do affects those around us. And we need to feel needed. Sometimes when we're not feeling needed, we need to remember Joseph. Sometimes when we feel we're enslaved in loneliness or imprisoned in the season of our life, whatever it may be, that no one cares or is thinking about us, but there are opportunities lurking in every corner. We just have to see them. You know, when Cain slew his brother... God asked him where Abel was, and Cain's answer was, has now become famous, am I my brother's keeper? Am I responsible for him? The emphatic answer through the whole rest of the Bible is absolutely yes. As there is need, as you have opportunity, absolutely yes. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 10. Jesus really expanded on that when he talked to the lawyer who who came to him with what he thought was a trick question. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He had the head knowledge. He had read the book. But he had a problem applying it. He wanted some loopholes. Do I really have to be responsible for others? Do I really have to love for and care for this person or that person? The lawyer wanted to go through life sort of like a first century John Wayne. You know, I I don't need anybody. 
Nobody needs me. Well, maybe I need my horse. But, you know, other than that, I don't need anybody and nobody needs me. Brethren, is that the way we go through life? I, I like John Wayne, don't get me wrong, but, you know, that's not biblical. Luke chapter 10 and verse, again, 30. Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he had arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. You know that if that had been the high priest, they would have stopped if the high priest was in the, in the ditch. You know that if the governor Pilate had been in the ditch needing help, suddenly they would have felt, ne- I'm needed to help, right? You know if the king had been in the ditch, but they didn't. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Finally, he said, verse 37, he said, who? Verse 36, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do Likewise, Jesus was saying that no one is not needed, that there's plenty of opportunity to go around. The fields are white with harvest. Everywhere we look, there are ways to to serve. There are ways to feel needed. We just have to see who our neighbor is. So let's make this a little more practical at this point point what are some specific things that we can do as we are looking to understand who needs us and and how can we serve them number one be realistic be realistic what we're really talking about is service and looking for ways to serve and and through that seeing and feeling that we are needed but we have to understand our limitations if we're married If we have children, our first responsibility is to take care of our family, not everyone else. We must not neglect our family in serving our congregation, our neighbors, our community. Our greatest legacy is our children. I'll never forget the kind of emphasis our dad put in our lives. He worked hard in the ministry. He served long and hard, long hours, lots of times on the road. He loved the work. He loved the brethren. He loved his calling. But, you know, he made up for being gone, being out of town at times. He made up for it at other times with us at home. We worked outside with him. I watched him work on cars and fixing motors and tried to learn what I could as a little knothead kid, you know getting tools for him and getting the wrong tools and having to do it, you know, over and over again until I got the right one. We went fishing. He took us hunting with him. He talked with us. He listened to us. And when I needed him the most, he was there. At critical times in my life as a boy 
trying to figure out life, what it meant to be a man. He listened, he wasn't critical, he wasn't demeaning, he was reassuring, and he was reaffirming. Was he perfect? Of course not. But brethren, if we have a family, we must take care of our mate and we must take care of our children. That's the number one priority in our life after our personal relationship with God. We should serve in the church, but let us not let service in the church cause us to neglect those who are our closest neighbors. It's a moving target. It takes adjustments. It takes balance. It takes wisdom. It takes working together as a team, a husband and wife, but we must be sensitive to that. What if we don't have a family? Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What if we're not married? You know, actually there are some advantages to not being married. Paul talks about it. He's not against marriage and family, but he said there are some practical advantages. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 30. 32, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He had better care about how to please his wife. Otherwise, he's not going to, it's not going to work. There's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman carries, cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I put a leash on you, but for what is proper that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Again, he's not against family or marriage, of course not, but he's saying that there are, there are opportunities if your time and energy and attention is not being used up in, in family, then your time and energy and attention can be helpful in other ways. And serving God. I just want to say here at this point that our, our singles group here in Charlotte really is outstanding in a lot of ways that they serve. They've put this event together. Uh, led by Mr. Jonathan Bueno, who did the uh, sermonette here this afternoon. The ministry oversees it, but the singles make it work. They organize it, they plan it, they provide the manpower, they run it. They are very, very, uh, very helpful in that way. They also have been starting a visiting program the last few months where they are visiting some of our uh, elders in the area, our seniors in the area. They, they really show a lot of initiative. And it's much appreciated. We have to be realistic. We have to look at our time constraints and our priorities. But oftentimes there are opportunities that are there if we only have eyes to see. Sometimes it's just in fellowship. Sometimes it's in being warm and friendly and encouraging to others. There was a Barna study done a few years ago. Five reasons millennials stay connected to church. Actually, this was just last year, September 17th. The author of the study said, The first factor that will engage millennials at church 
is as simple as it is integral, relationships. When comparing 20-somethings who remained active in their faith beyond high school and 20-somethings who dropped out of church, the Barna study uncovered a significant difference between the two. Those who stay were twice as likely to have a close personal friendship with an adult inside the church. 59% of those who stayed report such a friendship versus 31% among those who are no longer active. The same pattern is evident among the more intentional relationships such as mentoring. 28% of millennials who stay had an adult mentor at the church other than their pastor compared to 11% of dropouts who say the same. The implication is that huge proportions of church-going teenagers do not feel relationally accepted in church. This kind of information should be a wake-up call to ministry leaders as well as to church adults of the necessity of becoming friends with the next generation of believers, end quote. Now, we understand that this is talking about in the world, it's talking about Protestant churches, and, and there's more to the church than just a social club. But think about what they are, they are saying that they're identifying and think about as us, as adults, how important it is that we are striving to, as he said, become friends with the next generation so that they feel connected to people in the church. We all need to feel needed. We all need to feel connected. And there are tremendous opportunities in every direction we look. But we have to be realistic about where and how we serve. But everyone has an opportunity. Another aspect of serving and feeling needed is, is number two, be authentic. Be authentic. Now, what do I mean by this? You know, we can serve, but from the wrong motives. We can work to get ahead. We can serve for show. If we're hypocrites at home, our kids will see that. If we're one way at church and then we're different at home, they're not going to respect that. We need to be open with our children. We need to be honest. They need to see that we're authentic and genuine and that, yes, we make mistakes. And maybe even working through those mistakes and working through even conflicts is teaching them to be able to handle disappointments and handle difficulties. But whatever, we need to be genuine with our children. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, the same is regard to service to one another in the body of Christ. If, if we are a ladder climber, it's not going to work. God is watching. He sees it all, and He's the one whose opinion is important who is the only one who's important. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed... 
Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You know, God, God sees what we're doing, and he knows if our works are to be seen of man, and he says, if, if so, there's no reward. And frankly, others are going to figure that out too. But if we do things just to serve from a genuine and authentic desire to serve, that's priceless. I want to say as well that there are a number of brethren here in Charlotte who have really gone out of their way to serve others who are in need um, in organized ways on a number of crews that have been organized in different ways, sometimes by the ministry uh, sometimes the outreach program that has uh, been done recently, or other local things when there's a need. Sometimes not organized by the ministry. Sometimes they just hear about a need, and, and you hear later on that they just showed up and they took care of things. Quietly, not for applause. They don't get a certificate. We don't have a presentation here, you know. But they know who they are. And God is pleased. And they're filling a need, and they are needed. And we have faithful brethren all over the world filling that kind of need, taking care of their brethren, and experiencing the joy that comes when we fill a need and when we feel needed. But we have to be authentic and genuine. Another key in serving and filling a need is, number three, be better. Be better. Now, what do I mean by this? You know, being authentic and genuine in our interaction with others doesn't justify us treating others badly. It doesn't justify us staying in bad habits or improper perspectives. We've got to be learning a better way. I remember when I was a teenager and there was a teen sermon or Bible study given one time and the title was, Be Yourself but be a better one. Be yourself, but be a better one. I've never forgot that. I don't remember much of the sermon, but the title really helped me. You know, it was be yourself and develop your personality and don't try to be someone else and don't try to, 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 to live up to what someone else is like, but improve, grow. Don't be satisfied with, with bad habits. Change. Be different. Let God build His character in you. First Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. The same is true when we are seeking to have purpose in serving others. To really help others in, in a meaningful way, we've got to be growing ourselves. Actually, our example of growth is one of the best ways that we can serve others and fill a need. We heard a little bit about that in the in the sermonette. First Timothy chapter four and verse verse twelve. He says, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect 
neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Interesting what Paul told Timothy. He said, grow because it's going to encourage others when they see you grow. That's very profound. And I think we can all understand that. It's inspiring to see others and see them growing. You know, it's inspiring to see our, our seniors, our elders, who have been around a long time and are still growing and learning. Each new challenge that they face in the more the twilight of their life. And as they respond to it positively, they they show they're not too old to learn. And they set the pace for us because every new period of life, every new season of life has its new challenges. They never stop. It's inspiring to see that. It's inspiring to see the young people, the, the kids, when they grow when they change, when they develop, maybe we see an attitude begin to mature. And we think, wow, that is, that is great. That's fantastic. And it's inspiring and it's encouraging to us as we watch that. You know, brethren, a way that we can help others fill a need is, is just to grow ourselves. Others are watching. Not to judge, not to be critical, but they notice when we were quick-tempered before and now we're a little less quick-tempered. We were impatient before and now, you know what? We're a little more patient. We're learning from our mistakes. It inspires them to grow. It inspires them to not give up. It's a way to serve. Number four. Another way that we serve and that we fill a need is be faithful. Be faithful. Another thing that that others need from us is they need to see that we are faithful to God and to His Word and to His rule in our life. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. It says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man. We're we're growing, we're developing together to his measure, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Why did Paul write about this? Because there were winds of doctrine blowing around in the first century. And he was warning the brethren about them. And he had to tell them there is a church, there is a body, and God is working through it. And God teaches us doctrine through His church. And he said, don't get sidetracked. 
He said there are deceivers, there are time wasters. Don't get sucked into it. Nothing's different today. There are winds of doctrine that swirl around us, but they are not new. The warning is for us as much as it was for them. Verse 15, he says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Every joint supplies something to the body. Every one of us has a part to play. Even the appendix. When we are faithful, when we are faithful, we are adding to the body. We are contributing to the body. We are helping the body grow. We are helping others to be faithful. When we talk in fellowship, you know, when someone, from time to time perhaps, brings up something that is contrary to sound doctrine, and we gently guide the conversation back into something that is profitable, that is biblical. Brethren, we are being faithful, and we are helping them, God willing, to be faithful as well. It's very important. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 12. He says, therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. He's not talking about physical ailments. He's he's talking about spiritual vitality, as as the heading says in in my Bible here. He says in verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward when he had wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." Brethren, if if we fall away, if we get caught up in a false doctrine, we're not the only ones that suffer. We're not the only ones that will become affected. He said that many become defiled. Others will be affected around us. Family members, friends, Brethren, we are close to. We are not an island. Things do not happen in isolation for good or bad. And, you know, that's a serious warning. That if we turn aside, if we get spiritually shipwrecked and pull others with us, that's a fearful thing. That's terrifying. That we would have to face God someday and explain that to him. Those around us need us to be spiritually faithful in every possible way. 
And when we do that, we contribute to their faith and we strengthen them, even if they may never tell us that. You know, they may not come up to us and say, you know, your faithfulness really helps me every day. They probably won't. It doesn't mean it's not happening. It's a powerful way that others need us. Number five. Number five. The last one. <clears throat> Be focused. Be focused. What do we mean by focused? I mean our mission as a church. Ezekiel chapter 33. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 33. It's a very familiar passage. We read it a lot. In verse 1, again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land, take a man from their territory and make him their watchman. When he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet, verse 4, and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and the sword comes and takes any person from among them, he's taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of of Israel. Therefore you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. You know, when we realize the work of the church in this age and what we are about and why we're here, it's astounding that the church has been given the commission to take the gospel to the world and to warn our peoples this message and that we are that watchman on the wall and all of us collectively are a part of that. You think about who needs us? Who needs you to do the work? Who is in that city? As we imagine ourselves on the wall and we see the, the armies coming and we're looking inside the city and everyone's going about without a clue, going about their daily business, having no idea of the, the destruction that's about to come upon them. How badly do they need someone who has the compassion and the drive to publish that message? You know, this is also a key to helping our young people stick to the truth. That they, that they sense a sense of mission that they're a part of. The Barnes uh, group study continues... The research shows few churches help young people discover a sense of mission, though this too is important in cultivating a faith that lasts. Millennials who remain active in church are more likely to indicate they had found a cause or issue at church that motivates them. Now we understand that churches out there have every type of different cause and, and issue that they they put their emphasis on. There are a lot of different types of missions that, that they can be a part of. The point is, we, we need to feel that we are a part of something big. And our young people need to feel that. All of us do. And what is possibly bigger than the gospel being taken to the world? 
and all of us having a part in that. Ephesians chapter 6, we won't turn there for lack of time, but it talks about us having an opportunity to pray for our, our leaders who are the mouthpiece. Paul told the brethren, pray for me that I would have boldness in taking the gospel message. And we, we, we do that. We're not all the mouthpiece on the telecast, but it's our responsibility to hold up those who are, hold up their arms, give them support, pray that they would have boldness and strength and perseverance and courage and support them through our, our tithes and offerings. What could be more important than that? Brethren, who needs you? Some have cast aside the work in this day when we are closer than ever. And it's needed more than ever. You know, if we don't feel needed enough, maybe we need to throw our hearts into the work, praying for the work, supporting the work, in whatever way we possibly can, more than we ever have before. God is going to warn the world and get this message out through somebody. Let it be us. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. God has given us His Spirit. But not just to bottle it up and save it for a rainy day. He's given it to us to use. John chapter 7 and verse Verse 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, will be full of the Spirit, feel content, be satisfied, sit back, watch the world go by, and live happily ever after. Isn't that what it says? No, it says, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. It will flow out. He or she will be activated and energized because they are serving potentially thousands and tens of thousands and millions of people who desperately need what they have to give. We know what's coming. We know the dark days that are coming. We know that we're also preparing to be kings and priests and rule on the earth. We know Isaiah 30 talks about you. Your teachers will no longer be hidden, but you will see them and you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk you in it. Brethren, who needs you? What an opportunity it's going to be for us to feed them, to give them water, give them food, give them clothing and housing, like Joseph did, but actually go far beyond what Joseph. He did not convert the whole nation of Egypt. He could not change them to worship the true God, but we will have that opportunity. Let's turn to one final scripture. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In verse 13. 
This is the theme of, of the weekend, as Mr. Bueno mentioned. Matthew 5:13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Yes, we are needed. We have been called to be needed. Needed by our mates, needed by our husbands, our wives, our children, if we have a family. Needed by our brethren, by the young, by the old, by the in-between. Needed by our nations today who need a warning message, who need a message of hope, and needed by all humanity in the future to learn the right way to live, to be guided by the saints. And that honor will be given to the saints. If we can see that we are not really alone, but we are a part of a a great body, a unified body that is doing a great work accomplishing God's purpose for all humanity in one of the most exciting periods of history that will ever occur. Brethren, who needs you? Maybe that's the wrong question. Maybe it should be, who doesn't need 